I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm coming to you live from Greenville, Illinois. And I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm also live from Greenville, Illinois. <laughs> I guess like I usually am, but more more alive than other times. You're usually dead. I'm usually dead here. Uh, that's right, though. Uh, Dean's here. He gave a cool talk uh, at the university. It was a really fun time. And we ate some pizza, and that's been it. We did. It was really good. Uh, it's been a nice time seeing all the sites, meeting all the folks, uh, becoming a, a local celebrity, just seeing all my old friends here at Greenville. Uh, it feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's been rad. Okay, well, here we are for the Magnificast live. We're together and we're doing it. There's usually a bit of different energy here when we're doing it together, yeah. so that's something to look forward to. Um, okay, so last week we did this thing in Bolivia, but the week before that we started our, our brand new arc on postmodernism and Christianity and also Marxism, and <laughs> we decided that we're going to do that in the most po- postmodern way possible, and that means that we started it, and now we're going to ignore it for a while, and it'll come back around at some point. Uh, postmodernism is all about sort of upsetting your expectations, uh, getting outside the binary, uh, you know, you, you think that there's going to be a part two, and there maybe will be, but it will be later, <laughs> not yeah. right now. There is no meta narrative to this postmodern narrative. So we're going to do something entirely different this week. I think mostly because we just because we're embracing postmodernism hard, <laughs> and we're not going to do it. That's it. Um, yeah. So uh, this week we're going to actually talk about something that's uh, a little more historical, but also applicable to Christians and act. Uh, activists and uh, Christians who are interested in labor organizing, uh, and talk about the centenary. Yep. Talk about the centenary. 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 Dang. This is all staying in the podcast. There's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> you can't edit it from here. No. Nope. We're together. <laughs> the centenary of the Winnipeg general strike. Yeah. There we go. Okay. It's a big strike in Manitoba, in Canada. So we're uh, really we're really uh, internationalizing our podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool though. There's a lot of really interesting Christians caught up in that story, and I think it's definitely worth talking about. It's also, I mean, we talk so much about Catholicism and liberation theology, but in this one, we just got some good Methodists, some good Methodist boys, really doing their thing. Yep. You gotta get them in there. You gotta get them in there. It's an ecumenical podcast. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I think so, sometimes people actually think that it's a Catholic podcast because we talk about Catholicism so much, and because I am one, but. Uh, newsflash, Matt is not Catholic, and it is not a Catholic podcast. Yeah, that's right, but I could be at any point. You never know. It's true. You never do know. Just one more thing about postmodernism. It's still a postmodernism, Mark, if you think about it. <laughs> that's right. 
Uh, well, speaking of that, here's a great transition. Uh, before we get into the Winnipeg General Strike... Parentheses, transition, parentheses. <laughs> yeah, that's right, slash, slash. Uh, we are going to do some Reddits. Uh, and we have been through the Art Christianity Redditing minds as usual, but I did find another gem. Uh, and we can either start there or we can come back to it. Whichever you prefer, man. I think we should start there. We, right. uh, yeah, we've been through our Christianity a lot. We've picked it. We've picked it clean of all its diamonds. We've been stripping these walls, and uh, it is just we're too too far in it, too deep down, and it's coming up short. And Dean dove in even deeper yet to something worse than Christ our Christianity. <laughs> it's called our true Christianity. <laughs> And if you don't know what that is, you can probably guess, uh, but it is a subreddit for the folks who feel more Christian than the Christianity subreddit. It's a, can you believe it? No, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad all around. Uh, so, as you can imagine, I think this is going to become a great uh, new deep vein of uh, good, shiny podcast material for a while, um, but we're just going to crack a little bit of it right now. So, let me read it to you, Matt. We'll see what you think. Here's the question. Something about the Bible that I've been wondering for a while now. That's the title. Great. <clears throat> the body of the question goes like this. I'm a Christian, and I believe that the Bible is truth. However, is it the whole truth? Are there things, not necessarily bad things, out there in the world that are not included in the Bible for whatever reason? It's hard to put this into words. This is probably related to my love of cryptozoology and the supernatural, wondering if the unexplained is out there waiting to be found, or maybe I'm just thinking about this too much. So Matt, I pose the question to you. Are there things out there in the world that are not included in the Bible for whatever reason? Yeah, that's a that's very funny. This question, up until the last sentence, it's like uh, it's an all truth is God's truth kind of question. Like, you know, you discover something new about the world that's not talked about in the Bible. So yeah, it's true, and it's God's truth. Like historical materialism, for example. Right, right, of course, yes. Not in the Bible, but nevertheless. But this question does, at the, at the very end, give you a very fun twist. It's like, um, okay, so are there things in the Bible that... I'm sorry, are there things that are not in the Bible that are true? Like maybe Bigfoot, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just the truth in the world. Something out there. Something more. And Bigfoot is out there. Bigfoot is out there. As we all know, we've all seen the pictures. We've all seen those pictures. The aliens, they're out there. The ghosts, they're out there. There are ghosts are in the Bible, though, so that's not a big deal. That's but true. <laughs> yeah, uh, Aliens, Bigfoot, like the Chupacabra. Um, down here in Southern Illinois, we got the Murfreesboro Mud Monster. But, um, I'm sorry, the Murphy's what? The Murfreesboro Mud Monster. He's uh, he's one of those those big crypto apes. Uh, now, what is Murfreesboro? It's a town in Southern Illinois. Uh -huh. It's even further south than this one, though. Right. But what is Murphy's one single borough? <laughs> It's his burrow. <laughs> it's it's Murphy's burrow. He wants you out of the swamp now. <laughs> so you have a Shrek monster. So There's a Shrek monster running around down here, and right. uh, it uh, it's fine. It's just one of those truths that's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but it is true for sure. Yeah, I think this is um, a really important question. Um, you know, there's this other question that we've never actually read on the show because I think it's too funny. Um, but there's this question about um, the link of Mormonism and um, Bigfoot. And the question is something like, um, you know, do Mormons believe that uh, Bigfoot is actually Cain wandering the earth for all eternity? And this, like, in on Reddit, this, like, other person replied, who's like, I'm a Mormon. No, no one actually believes that. But this is a funny conspiracy theory that this other weird guy, like, Mormon guy came up with. And I love that, honestly. I, love that. I think that's great. If, if um, I mean, 
Mormonism is this like really funny religion. Um, not trying to disparage it, I think at this point, but I'm just saying it's I mean, funny. Christianity is a very funny religion. <laughs> They're all in general, very, every all version very funny. of Christianity. But it's like so perfectly like um, like you know fits the geography of America that it found a way to kind of like uh, capture Bigfoot and make it <laughs> part of the religion. I think that's fantastic. Me too. I think that it's a failure of the rest of Christians not to do that. I agree. More Christians should be willing to be as wild as Mormon Christians. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna believe some goofy stuff anyways. Might as well get real weird with it. Yeah. Uh, I am surprised, however, just looking through the replies on this, at how many people on our true Christian, our true Christian, excuse me, I want to get the nomenclature right, on our true Christian do apparently uh, find themselves open to cryptozoology. Yeah, I mean, of course, this is not surprising to me. These are white, these are like white nerdy teenagers on the internet <laughs> arguing about esoteric theology. Of course, they're also interested in Bigfoot. I guess. I don't know what I expected. Maybe I expected them to be a little more like uh, skeptical in some ways, but I suppose that was uh, pretty unfounded. Yeah, maybe. Anyway. So there we oh, go. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh. I'm sorry. I've just found a perfect response. <laughs> Breaking that says, news. It says this. Also, what is up with this thread? Everyone on here is all, oh, yeah, sure, there's lots of things that aren't in the Bible. Meanwhile, evolution, Big Bang, etc. But every time someone brings those up, it's all, that's not in the Bible. Make up your minds. Yeah, good point. Make up your minds. And that's from an atheist. Yeah. Here. You either have to believe in Christianity with Bigfoot, or you should just be an atheist. Yep, I think you're right. Um... I'm a Bigfoot enthusiast from this moment on. I made the decision. So here's something wild about Bigfoot, though. Uh-huh. I like Bigfoot because the Soviet Union also believed in Bigfoot. Well, many researchers in it did, and they were trying really hard to find him as some kind of uh, missing link in the story of evolution. So it's the project of scientific socialism to go out and find Bigfoot. Isn't it interesting that Bigfoot is not in the Bible, and it's also not in historical materialism, mm -hmm. yet we all still believe in Bigfoot? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes you think, huh? It makes me think. <laughs> cool. Um, well, let's ascend a bit out of the depths of this <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, I think we've got to. So that's the um, that's like the super concentrated sort of content you're going to find <laughs> in True Christianity. Okay, if if Reddit is soda, that's like the pure concentrate of Dr. Pepper before right. you uh, water it down with like <laughs> right. with fizzy water. Yeah. This is just regular Dr. Pepper over here, though. This is from our Christianity. Uh, this, this question is just called pig bone to ward off evil spirits? <laughs> this sounds actually like some concept. Kind of <laughs> it's, uh, we found these independently, but it's surprisingly uh, similar. They're both surprisingly similar. Okay, so this is what it says. Someone recently shared that they carry a pig bone to ward off evil spirits. Her reason is that she suspects her bosses at work are into a cult to make mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. This is just capitalism. Like that. <laughs> and... There's a belief that evil spirits don't like pigs, so she's doing this to be safe. Mm -hmm. I was very direct with her and said, what she is doing is not right. She is mixing salvation with things of the world since mm -hmm. she is a believer. Mm -hmm. She got very defensive about it. it. She got very defensive about it and said I was judging her. How would I proceed in this situation? How do I talk to her without alienating her? So... What do you think, Dean? Um, so her, her her bosses are in a cult trying to make money. Right. It's called wage labor. It's called capitalism. <laughs> I believe that to be true. But is a is a pig bone going to be um, the thing that helps her out of this situation? I don't think it is. Huh. I'm gonna say I really I try not to disagree with the underdogs of our redditing stories, but it's this hard. one uh, is not not a pig bone that's going to save you. 
Um, it's just going to be organized labor. It's just going to be a union. <laughs> uh, I do want to know more about this workplace, though. <laughs> it's just like, it's Target. <laughs> yeah, it's Target. It's Target, and uh, this person's bosses are just uh, drawing some extremely esoteric symbols in the back in the back room <laughs> oh to my, make money. I would I would watch it. This is an episode of Supernatural. I want to see <laughs> in, this, in this last season. I want the the uh, mm-hmm. the coven at Target keeping the workers from unionizing with uh, magic. Yeah, I like that premise. TM, that's my idea now. TM, TM, TM. <laughs> Need that. Right, we've got it. Okay. Um, here's one more for you. This is um, this is a little bit more just reg- of the regular Dr. Pepper variety. <laughs> Are Christians allowed to eat squid ink pasta? <laughs> I'm thinking of making squid ink spaghetti as a dish for my family, and they are all Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that they are not allowed to eat unclean things like pork, lobster, crab, etc. Squid is also in that list. Well, it's not in the list that you just gave, but I guess it could be. I don't know that they can eat the meat, but I don't know if ink counts. Is it safe for them to eat? <laughs> Edit, they are Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So what about this one? There's a the twist of Seventh Day Adventist is uh, a pretty important one at the end, but yeah. uh, that's fine. Can they eat pig's ink? Uh, what, what, now what's that? Exactly. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out. It, so the question really comes down to: uh, Could you eat the product of the squid? Mm-hmm. I've never heard of anyone eating uh, pig's milk or anything like that, but pig's ink though. Could you eat pig's ink pasta? Well, I think the problem is that that is not a thing that is real. Okay. Well, I unless guess we're it's like these boundaries right Unless now. it is a pig that has a pen. <laughs> okay. it, uh, you take the pen from the pig, and now it's in your pasta. Right, right. Okay. All right. Could you eat squid's ink pasta? First of all, I didn't even know this was a thing. Oh, yeah. It's like black pasta. It's a thing. You know, but the, the ink of a squid, it's poop. Okay, so again, could you eat pig's ink pasta? It's unclean, but for different reasons. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to say no. Christians can't eat it. You can't have it because I don't even believe it's real. Okay, I agree. If it, listen, I've never heard of pig's ink. There's definitely not squid ink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've solved it. Um, we're going to put those away for a while. The idea that we might have to look at another true Christian post <laughs> in the future is really harrowing to me right late. now. <laughs> There's going to be some doozies, I think. Uh, well, let's turn, though, uh, straight to the Winnipeg strike. Uh, you can tell the energy of us being in the same room is just a lot of uh, arbitrary association. And I'm sorry you're all victim to it, but here it is. Here it is. Uh, the Winnipeg general strike, it's important because, like we said earlier, this is the centenary, the 100th anniversary this year in 2019. And in Canada, there's been all kinds of uh, news about it. Unions are into it. They're celebrating it. Um, some other folks are, but it's especially interesting because there's a huge and important Christian element in the Winnipeg general strike. So it's the biggest strike in Canadian history. Um, it's a huge deal. Some people call it like the Winnipeg Soviet even, and they're not completely wrong, probably not completely right, but it's a cool rhetorical move that isn't totally unfounded. Um, we'll say a lot more about it in a moment, but I guess for now it's just important to sort of solidify it as a, a cultural moment in Canada at that time that is, you know, newly significant now that is important for Christians. Uh, Matt, you're not from Canada and you don't live there. What do you know about the Winnipeg General Strike? <laughs> well, uh... Quick, quick plug. I did read a graphic novel called 1919 about the Winnipeg strike. And until I read that graphic novel, 
I didn't even know where Manitoba was. <laughs> uh, Winnipeg is a is a city in Manitoba. I've learned, uh, and Manitoba <laughs> is a province in Canada. That's right. And both of those are true facts. So I know that part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, other than that, I mean, I did read the graphic novel. They're, like, very mad. There's labor issues. There's labor disputes. I know that the first people that kind of led the strike were the Hello Girls, the switchboard Hello. operators in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yep. And that's pretty interesting. It's it led is. by women, too. So it's a great reference point. Yeah. There's a great statue in uh, Winnipeg about it where they where the workers uh, turned over a streetcar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a big streetcar kind of turned over. That's it. That's all I know. I mean, I think that's probably all that even many Canadians know to tell you the truth. But uh, <laughs> I've read a graphic novel about yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's great. Uh, well, we're going to tell you a little bit more about it. Um, all right. There's a number of things you can read about this. Lots of like whole books published about it, and you should read about them. There are many, many angles of the strike itself that are really fascinating that we won't cover. Um, instead, we just pulled out like a couple of really short summary articles that I thought were kind of interesting, and uh, articles about the strike and articles about the Christian involvement in it. So let me just set the stage for talking through it by introducing us to the strike through the words of uh, this person, Anna Penner. And it's in this really, really neat short article called Politics in the Park in a, um, I don't know, a publication called The Young Historian. It's from the late 90s. I don't know. All details of, the, of that are lost on me, <laughs> the specific publication. But this is true. What Anna Penner says is right. And it's a really good summation. And I'm going to read it to you now. All right. She says this. Uh, so she starts out by explaining that, like, the first people who kind of were uh, organizing the strike were involved in the Metal Trades Council, and they voted to strike, and uh, the rest of labor had to decide how to react in Winnipeg. So, on May 6th, the Winnipeg Trades and Labor Council, which represented the labor unions, took a vote to see whether or not they would support the workers and join the strike, the Metal Trades workers, that is. Over 11,000 voted to join the strike, and only 500 had voted against. That's a pretty big mandate. The council set the beginning of the strike for 11 a.m. on Thursday, May 15th. The first workers to leave their jobs were the telephone workers, as Matt just said. They left work at 7 a.m. and were not replaced, but most of the workers stopped at 11 a.m., the time that had been set. The buses stopped running, the post office shut down, restaurants were abandoned by their employees, even elevators stopped. Between 25,000 and 30,000 workers in both the public and private sectors walked off their jobs. Winnipeg was was without things such as mail, taxis, newspapers, telegrams, telephones, janitor service, or barbers. Not even a single haircut on that day. (laughs) At the beginning of the strike, there was also no gasoline, milk or bread, and very little meat. The Waterworks employees remained at work with permission of the strike committee, but the water pressure was reduced so as to provide only for basic necessities. The city stopped. You love to see it. Um, Not a phone in sight. People just live their lives. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Not, not even one phone site no. uh, did not get replaced. Not even one haircut. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's a big general strike. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, people in the United States are completely blind to like world politics, and that we don't know about this is just more evidence, I guess, that backs that up. But it's a really good example to kind of pull out of history. Uh, labor has all of the power in the world if it can solidify itself and do a big thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there's lots of really interesting stories of strikes in the U.S. too that people don't know about. Um, but it is true that this one is a huge one in the country, you know, just next door. Yeah, and the ramifications of this strike are huge too. Uh, you know, it goes on to like the ener- energies from the strike go on to found the um, Communist Party of Canada and the um, 
The Progressive Democrats, yeah? Yeah, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which will then become the New Democratic Party. Man, never would have got that name. I mean, <laughs> why would you? <laughs> I just know who Manitoba is. <laughs> yeah, that, you're doing great. Um, yes, uh, it's also important to kind of contextualize this further in history. So it's 1919, and a very important thing happened in 1917 that yeah. we all know and love. Um, the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution. And it was a real, actual, legitimate fear in Canada among certain people that, like, hey, this was going to be a galvanizing event. Uh, and it was. Uh, the Winnipeg strike was not, you know, it wasn't a Bolshevik strike. <laughs> there wasn't even a Communist Party yet. Uh, the Communist Party will get founded later on. Uh, but it is true that, like, there was a real kind of, um, there was news about the Soviet Union floating into Canada. Canada was also actively opposing the Soviet Union at the time. They had a pretty reactionary government. Uh, so people were looking for that kind of news. And there was a radical left building. There was the one big union, which was kind of the Canadian expression of IWW-type politics. Um, and all of that was really coming to a head. And so the Winnipeg strike is sort of like the lightning flash of a uh, radical labor kind of moment in Canadian history. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, folks in Canada were right to worry about a revolution. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. The strike shows that they were. Uh, there was even a sort of provisional government sort of thing. Yeah, set up totally. Via the, the strike committee. Yeah, what a cool thing. Um, well, okay, so there's this strike going on. It's great. It's popping off. <laughs> um, but also in Canada at this very moment, and kind of like preceding this, but in Winnipeg at this very moment, there were the emergence of these things called the Prairie Labor Churches. They were Methodist churches that were, I don't know, focused on labor. So this is kind of um, not the not the beginning of like the Christian influence in the story, because the um, there's all kinds of Christians involved in the Winnipeg strike, but this is one place where sort of like the... I don't know, the Christian energies sort of solidified or kind of came from with regard to some of the strike stuff. So um, let's read a little bit about the labor churches. Yeah. Uh, so there's a great article by this guy named Oscar Cole Arnell. Uh, he's a really interesting scholar. He does a lot of work on the social gospel in Canada. There's another guy named Richard Allen who's like the social gospel guy for Canada. So if you're really into it, you can check out Richard Allen's book, The Social Passion, and some of the stuff. But Oscar Cole Arnell is great. Because he also does this kind of thing, but he has an investment in liberation theology in Latin America and solidarity movements in Canada, and he even wrote a book about Canadian liberation theology. Uh, neat dude. So anyway, he wrote this article about the Prairie Labor Churches in 2005, and it is called The Prairie Labor, Labor Churches, The Methodist Input. Um, it's in a journal called Studies in Religion. All right, so the first thing you got to know about labor churches uh, is that they started before the Winnipeg General Strike. They were in Canada before this, but also the uh, labor church in Winnipeg had started a year earlier in 1918. It was founded by this guy named Reverend William Ivins, who was a Methodist. He got pushed out of a different church that he was part of for a while for being a pacifist during the First World War. That was his first big controversy. And over time, he ended up starting this labor church with a bunch of working people and having kind of put together this community for about a year before the Winnipeg general strike popped off. Uh, he was in a good position to have a sort of orienting voice and also know already how to express solidarity with that because they were his church members. That's the people that he was hanging out with. Um, and Oscar Colarnell describes some things really well uh, in this passage. So he says, the emergence of the labor churches coincided with the stresses of the war, its ending and the massive Winnipeg general strike in May and June of 1919. 
Local organized and unorganized labor forged an alliance which ground the city to a halt in this most well-known general strike in Canadian history. At the core of the work stoppage stood the city's labor church and its militant pastor, William Ivins. In fact, he was a member of the strike committee, a chief orator at strike rallies, and the editor of the strike newspaper, the Western Labor News, until his arrest on June 17, 1919, by the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. You don't want them on your back. His position was then taken over by another Methodist minister, James Shaver Woodsworth, uh, more commonly known as J.S. Woodsworth, who arrived from British Columbia specifically to support the strike. Soon thereafter, he too was arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Real bad luck with pastors. Uh, Yeah, so some stories of uh, the Winnipeg general strike do not pick this part up. That graphic novel that you mentioned earlier... doesn't at all. Strangely, it's bizarre. I think it's a, a real oversight. But uh, most histories, even those that are not written by, you know, people with an investment in the social gospel, I mean, they're compelled (laughs) to tell this part of the story because it actually is central and integral to it. Um, So, Matt, let's talk about it. You're a Methodist. What do you think about these wild guys? I think that is, <laughs> this is definitely an outlier in Methodist history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we've talked about other sort of like wild Methodists on the show. Um, there's a few others out there. A.E. Smith, he's Canadian and Methodist. And around this whole this whole scene. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there are more recent folks too, like Gil Dawes in Iowa, who is a person we still need to talk to. Yeah. Got to call that guy on the phone. One of these days. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there is like, there are there are other examples of, of Methodists being sort of interested in social justice topics. Um, this is, uh, 1919 is before the Methodist Church split into, oh wait, no it's not, it's after. This is the Canadian Methodist Church. Think about it in the United States. <laughs> Again. You can tell me anything and I believe you. Yeah. Now, now we're on the other side of Well, the, in the United States, yeah. St- yeah. In the United States, the Methodist Church split into these two different factions over uh, slavery and some other mm-hmm. things. So there are the, there are the Methodists, um, and then there were the uh, the Free Methodists, and um, the Free Methodists were anti-slavery, uh, led by this guy. Well, sort of led by this guy named B.T. Roberts. He was disowned in a lot of ways too. Um, but anyways, that's the United States going on there. I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there is in Methodism like the germs of sort of like some radical thought. But not a lot of radical thought. It's no liberation theology. Sure, sure. Uh, Well, that definitely comes to play in the lives of these folks, too. Uh, They have a lot of run-ins with their own congregations and with, like, Methodist ministry boards and all that kind of thing throughout their whole lives. Uh, now that's re- that's the real Methodism right there. <laughs> Having run-ins with your ministry board—that's yeah. the most Methodist part of the story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they do a lot of uh, bureaucracy navigating. Um, that's one thing I find so fascinating about these Methodists, though. Uh, again, not being a Methodist myself, but you know, being invested in kind of learning more about it, I guess. Uh, they're always navigating both like labor boards and church boards. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because some historians don't understand why they care about having one foot in both of them. But even people like A.E. Smith, even as he's radicalizing as far left as he possibly can, uh, he's constantly like, no, no, I don't want to get kicked out of the church and I don't want to get kicked out of the labor council. I really like these institutions. Like, they're like trying really hard to sort of stay within their own communities. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in a lot of ways, they have really similar goals. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's not like Methodists are, well, I mean, some of them are evil capitalists, but like, you know, there's a general, like Methodism is is a mainline Protestant denomination. They want the common good. They want all these kinds of things. So, you know, and even to this day, there are sort of like faith labor alliances that are led by Methodists and Episcopal folks. Methodism and Episcopalianism um, and Anglicanism, they're all like really closely related. Um, 
but that's another story altogether. <laughs> All I'm trying to say is that, like, you know, um, there is an affinity between uh, labor and religion in these traditions, but <laughs> that affinity is never expressed too radically. Or maybe it is expressed radically in word, but never in deed. And I think that's what we're going to see next in the story. Yeah, well, uh, do you want to introduce us to what sort of happens to these folks after participating in the strike? Yeah, so here we go. Strike action, negative press from the mass media, and arrest rendered Ivans vulnerable to the majority of Methodist moderates who felt that social transformation required reasoned approaches, which eschewed the militancy employed by labor churches. Mm-hmm. Now this is now that's Methodism. <laughs> Although the Methodist institution espoused strong social gospel positions, at the same time it found itself embarrassed, perhaps even frightened, by one of its uh, pastors serving as a leader in the Great Winnipeg General Strike. His strike activism, imprisonment, and trial upset church leaders unaccustomed to such publicity. This lack of flexibility toward Ivan's contrasted sharply with the case of Reverend R.A. Hoey, who had a requested who had requested a leave without stationing so that he could create a farm journal in contrast to Ivan's. <laughs> Another real radical. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think this is a good example of like, I mean, how this kind of gets worked out in the church sometimes, right? Like, um, uh, and you know, this is not unique to Methodism, but just unique to like, I think churches that have um, a broad constituency mm. and, you know, you have to please a lot of people. And if you, um, uh, especially in, in the uh, American, in, 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 I'm sorry, especially in religion in North America, you know, everyone is, uh, in pro- Protestant traditions, people are always trying to prove their orthodoxy, which is really hard when you don't have like a Pope or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you, if you meander too far to the left, um, people will be like, ah, just those liberals again, kind of given into the ways of the world, carrying their pig bones around to <laughs> protect them from evil spirits or whatever. Uh, and that's not what you want because that kind of, you know, weakens your claim to legitimacy as a denomination, as a social force, as like sort of a thought leader of, you know, what would become fundamentalism in like two years um, in like the 20s. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is like a, uh, this is something that the, Protestant denominations have dealt with in the past, um, you know, on the one hand, wanting to sort of live out their Christian tradition uh, and pair up with people who are have, have like interests, like like people in the labor movement. But also, you know, we're always kind of constricted by the, um, you know, having to appeal to moderates and to conservatives and also being weighed down by uh, weighed down and disciplined by by bureaucracies. So, hmm. I mean, this all makes sense to me. Yeah, I think that's one thing I love most about the labor churches is that, uh, so Reverend A. E. Smith, who we've talked about on this show in the past, um, he's a part of this whole story. As the Winnipeg general strike was going on in Brandon, Manitoba, nearby, uh, he organized solidarity strikes and all kinds of things like that. Uh, he got in trouble at the regular old Methodist church that he was preaching at. Um, because he was preaching in support of the strike and there were business people in his church and they said, we don't want that. And so, you know, he got removed by the the board. So he got permission from the Methodist board to establish a labor church. And by, to do it, he just went down to like the picket line. And he was like, who here wants to be in a church with me? <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it, there's a little more to it than that, but that basically is the story. Uh, and so the idea was, well, if the real problem is this is a mixed community of uh, classes and I can't say what I think is true, then I'll just build a church that's for one class and takes a side. Uh, and that was the same in the logic of the labor church that Ivan's had participated in. Um, and it's that kind of logic, too, that during the Winnipeg general strike actually made the labor church a rallying point for strikers 
So, like, Ivans is not just a peripheral figure in all of this, or just kind of a weird pastor who's hanging around workers. Like, he is on the strike committee. He's uh, kind of responsible for, like, rousing people's spirits in, like, they meet a lot in a park. And every Sunday, the labor church just started meeting in that park specifically and singing, like, hymns that were labor-oriented and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that decision and ability to take a side and not, you know have any qualms about it is like really impressive and interesting yeah it's totally impressive and interesting um i think it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the same time i guess it's just like it it points towards the ways that um churches in general are not like mainline protestant churches at least are not like labor labor movements right. they're, they're not like unions they're not like uh socialist parties or activist groups you know like that that they are i mean at this time in the United States, at least, or in Canada, in North America, generally, I guess we can speak pretty broadly about it. They're like, you know, um, they have like a wide constituency. And I think it, it goes to show you, too, that like churches and denominations are never one thing, that they have all of these kind of like forces inside of them. And for the labor church to break away is a big deal. I mean, I, I imagine the Methodist responses to this were like, bad <laughs> they probably were not super thrilled about a.e smith or ivans or anyone else who are you know are trying to stray too far from like methods and proper or the you know the discipline of that church particularly i mean it's kind of a hard thing because like um one reason that leftists might be involved in you know might want to organize in churches is that you can like kind of grasp the attention of a lot of people who might not pay attention to labor otherwise. Mm. But this would kind of like alienate you from those people, which is fine. I think it's a, maybe a good choice to make in this case, but it's just like an interesting strategy. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, you have to think of it as, uh, not just a religious expression, but it definitely is, but also sort of an organizing strategy. And I think those two things are really complicated and pretty nuanced, uh, when you, when it comes to messing with like weird denominations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one kind of interesting thing in Canadian history is that, uh, I forget exactly when this is founded, but not long after, the United Church in Canada, we talked to Jim Hodgson last week, who's, uh, he works for the United Church. Uh, it is a denomination that is an amalgamation of some Methodists and Presbyterians and some, I forget, some other Protestant Sure, they're all in there. Yeah, like the um, like United Church of Christ or something. Yeah, something. Um, so anyway, they became the United Church of Canada as a way of being ecumenical, that sort of thing. But what's really fascinating is um, it, it was founded as a progressive denomination, right? And that was sort of the idea. Uh, but there's a really funny um, aside in some like interviews with Tim Buck, the longtime leader of the Communist Party of Canada, where he talks about how the communists were like watching the United Church form with like really great excitement to be like whoa what if there was a protestant denomination that took the side of labor and that was their thing and they didn't have to deal with all these kind of internal contradictions because that was their choice right there was like a intentionally progressive church and he says you know well i guess we got disappointed that's not what happened <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> um, too bad but really fascinating anyway that like even communists right had recognized that all right there's something here and uh maybe christians like with just the right amount of uh intuitions could come together and sort of find some sort of way of being on the right side yeah uh it's such a funny thing. I mean, Tim Buck's not not all wrong. It's not a, not a total loss, right? Like yeah. a progressive Christian denomination is better than like what else was happening in, in yeah. North America at the time. It is, I guess, like what's another thing interesting about these kinds of stories, though, is that like um, 
it's always, I think I've said this before on our podcast, it's always hard to believe that, like, history happens all at once. Like, yeah. while these things are happening, there's a whole bunch of other things happening other places. <laughs> um, I think I think the last time I said this was when uh, we when I realized that Karl Marx and Abraham Lincoln were alive at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mind was just exploding. <laughs> um, but I guess what's really interesting is that, like, in 1919, the Winnipeg, the Winnipeg strike is going on, and that's all very cool. And, like, shortly after, there's, like, the United Church in Canada and sort of this, like, progressive take on Christianity. But at the exact same time in the United States, all of these, like, fundamentalism is happening. Mm. Like, it's kind of getting started. People are writing all these different, like, you know, documents about the fundamentals of Christianity and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, mainline denominations and not, like, and, and just, like, sort of evangelical Christianity is getting kickstarted. And they're all, like, sort of disciplining their members for not being orthodox enough, whatever that might mean. Um, this is when like, uh, Liberty University, not that by that name, but a different one is getting started and Bob Jones is getting started and the Moody Bible Institute is getting started. All these like reactionary, well, that's mean to say, but they are. That's true. But true. (laughs) All these reactionary Christian forces are also like, like, um, you know, uh, teaming up with like huge business forces. I guess it's all, it's just really interesting to me that there's, um, there's definitely like, you know, two Christianities going mm-hmm. on here that are the same in some ways. You know, they're all Christianity, but on the one hand, there's, like, these, like, very nice progressive people, these, like, these labor churches. There's all kinds of other, like, you know, more wild and radical folks, too, but I guess it's just all happening at once. I think kind of that larger historical perspective helps you understand, like, how, um, I think, outside the norm the labor churches would have been. I mean, yeah. you know, the most powerful and influential Christians in North America at the time were definitely, like, not these folks. This yeah. is not the norm. It's just yeah. like an outlier that is incredibly important, though. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, to talk about how, so the, there are Christians involved in the Winnipeg General Strike, and, you know, you could try to maybe estimate that influence in many different ways, and you could overstate it or understate it or whatever. But you can also do this in reverse. Like, the Winnipeg Strike ends up having this really formative kind of um, impact on Christianity in Canada. So not only, you know, the United Church doesn't just emerge out of that for sure. There's mm-hmm. lots of other factors involved. But some things that do happen are like Reverend A. Smith ends up being put on the path to radicalism that will eventually land him himself in the Communist Party of Canada, as we've talked about in a past episode. Uh, J.S. Woodsworth, he who you mentioned, he took over for Ivans after Ivans got arrested and then Woodsworth got arrested too. He became a really, really prominent uh, character in the CCF, the Co- uh, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. Um, that, for people who don't know, who aren't like Canada nerds, I guess, was... Uh, people who live in Canada. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was like a early sort of social democratic movement modeled off of like the Labour Party in Britain. And there were some socialists in it. There were some, you know, more reformist types in it. Woodsworth was kind of on, like, the left-of-center wing of it. Um, And he, like, the Winnipeg strike, for sure, radicalizes him and pushes him in that direction. Uh, And in large part, like, the Winnipeg general strike, I think you could definitely say, uh, radicalizes the social gospel in a really important way that's also wild. You know, like, we talk a lot about trying to find... Uh, like looking for glimmers of hope of where Christians were like in the right place at the right time or something. Uh, But you can also kind of see how these material conditions give birth to other forms of Christianity too that you couldn't really foresee or predict. Yeah, that's important. It's important. There's also sort of like a flexibility too in Protestantism that is not present in Catholicism. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of bureaucracy in in Methodism as as attributed to in this whole situation. But, you know, like, um, like running off to a park 
<laughs> and starting a new church on the spot is not something you could do in Catholicism because, like, the church, you, you know, that would be schismatic and, like, bad. And this is schismatic, too, but, like, in a fun way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. In a, in a way, like, in Protestantism, it doesn't matter, right? Like, right. oh, we'll start a new church. Nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course you will. That's what you're going to do. Um, but in this way, it, just, it works out. There, there's sort of like um, uh, planting a new church is sort of uh, a different idea in Protestantism than in yeah, Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, for a, sure. There's a plasticity to it that works out, I think, in their favor. But also, um, I'm sure a lot of the Methodists were still not very happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I should say, too, this is also a an anniversary of another strike in Canada, not a centenary. I think it's... 70 years? I'm not a mathematician. I think it's 70 years. It happened in 1949. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it was in Quebec, in asbestos, Quebec, and it was the asbestos strike. And it's also really fascinating, uh, speaking of exactly the thing you're talking about, because the Catholic Church, in large part, was... Uh, if you think the Catholic Church had a formative influence in Quebec, like you'd be right, but it had more than that. It was like running... Quebec with a extremely far right government in that time period. So there was a big strike and uh, Pierre Trudeau was there, Justin's dad, all kinds of people were there. And there was a couple of bishops who ended up siding with the strikers. And one of them is this guy named Archbishop Charbonneau. And uh, he took up collections for the strikers. It was a really big deal. And at the end of it, he resigned. Uh, the Vatican said for health reasons, but everybody in the labor movement said it was because he upset the premier, Maurice Duplessis, and he was uh, moved all the way uh, across the country to a completely different province, and that was that. And that was that. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I don't know, that's one strength of having a, a sort of a weak hierarchy in your yeah. church. Again, I mean, Methodism actually doesn't have a weak hierarchy, but, like, that, that, that there is sort of within the imagination of methodism that you could just start another church <laughs> right, right a labor church even yeah. yeah yeah so i guess uh the illustrative or the the what this illustrates for us though is that if you're a seminarian you're getting ordained in your church just find the church that it's easiest to start <laughs> a new church in <laughs> and just plant a labor church i should say there are some pretty amazing though like bizarre experimental catholic communities yeah or sure. like you know like the worker priests or whatever or like uh, base communities even yeah. right i mean like catholicism has its own way of working these things out yeah too. And it has its own weird plasticity it's yeah. just very different yeah totally yeah, totally or just uh join a revolutionary organization and take over your own church <laughs> there you have it uh, <laughs> Uh, we've the, people have tried it all. <laughs> be the young lords you want to see in the world. Uh, well, speaking of uh, institutional pressures, here's a great story, though. I mean, a sad one, but a good illustration of these problems. So, okay, we talked about how wild these labor churches are. Um, a. E. Smith started a, a particularly radical one in Brandon, Manitoba, as I mentioned, in solidarity with the Winnipeg strikers. Uh, but there's a really fascinating story of how this panned out um, for them in relation to their denomination. So here's Oscar Cole Arnau again. He says, A particularly chilling illustration of the alliance of establishment Methodism with the forces of order and power was the response of the chair of the church's Department of Evangelism and Social Service, T.A. Moore, to the Winnipeg General Strike. To Beatrice Bridgen, working with Reverend A.E. Smith at the Brandon Labor Church, Moore wrote that he desired information from her about the Brandon Church, leaving the impression that he was a supporter who needed his, this material to defend Smith's efforts. 
Trusting this appeal, Bridgen sent him descriptions of the Brandon congregation. What she did not know was that Moore was in the process of mutual information sharing with Lieutenant Colonel C.F. Hamilton of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's the feds. Hamilton's investigation of the labor churches emerged out of the federal government's fear of subversive revolutionary activity. Thus, it appears that Moore's anxiety regarding social revolution led him to abandon the labor churches, even to the point of using his friendship with Beatrice Bridgen to extract information for the Mounties. It's not great, I gotta tell you. In fact, it's bad. <laughs> There's always that person at church, at your church, <laughs> that you know is gonna narc on your revolutionary activities. There's always that one T.A. Moore. <laughs> The one Sunday school teacher that can't handle you starting a revolution. No, no. Oh, yeah, guys. What, uh, what are you talking about? I mean, <laughs> oh, the season of the means? Interesting. Oh, hmm. Yeah, I'd like to uh, support that. Maybe you could give me some more info. <laughs> I'm going to tell the pastor on you. <laughs> and that pastor is a mounted police officer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a, it's, I mean, it's a sad story. You're right. It's a bummer that that happened. Yeah. Um... I think it's another illustrative example, though, of how, like the nuances that happen like in organizing in churches, right? Sometimes yeah. I think that leftist Christians, this is me speaking probably for my past self more than a person that exists right now in reality, but the idea that like, okay, so leftists should go to church to because they're like, you know, people who are there love the poor in some way or another, so you should go and like try to convert them or something, right? Like it's a it's a captive audience that you could probably persuade to be on your side and kind of pick up a leftist sort of like way of being. Uh, and that is true, I think still, but there are so many other like, um, you know, like power dynamics feeding in these situations and interests and that even if you were to do that and you were like, you know, to get people in your church interested in organized labor, um, the discipline of churches like that is such that, like, they're going to be on the side of the bosses and not yeah. on your side. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you know, um, you gotta, you gotta go to church, get people out of that church and come to your, like, labor meeting, <laughs> to your strike meeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and not yeah. sort of, like, have the church be, I think, your primary site of organizing or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's probably simplistic as well, but, like, Still, a, a, a church is not a union, is what I'm yeah. trying to say. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's an important lesson that many Christians also who are, like, really zealous about their church communities, which is good. It's good to be happy about going to church and yeah. to like your church and all that kind of thing. Uh, but some Christians, I think, get a little too hung up on, like, seeing that as the uh, primary, even, like, political motivator for right. your activity. Well, I mean, that's, like, the, that's one of the problems with sort of, like, the Stanley Harawas post-liberalism right. kind of thing is that, like, you know, being Christians is... a you know, living this like very peculiar life where you're living in community with people and you're going to do, you know, politics by being in church. But mm -hmm. like, I don't know, you can't really do that if your politics is inevitably, um, you know, in service to a larger <laughs> ministerial board or <laughs> some other bureaucracy, right? I don't know. So I guess uh, to me, thinking about organizing and labor and all these kinds of things, it, it just, you got to get Christians interested in those bodies outside of the church so that they can discipline those people yeah. in their own particular ways <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Uh, churches are, are weird places that, you know, they're connected to uh, capitalist, capitalism in different ways that I think uh, you wouldn't recognize until 
they get you. Yeah, that's right. Until unless the, until the Mounties come. <laughs> unless you're in a labor church. Yeah, unless you're in a labor church, then it's fine. Yeah, and, and then you can see that as a political community. Yeah, that's uh, right. So William Ivins, thankfully, actually explains a little bit more about the labor church. I mean, he does it a lot in a lot of places, but I found this neat article by him uh, from 1921 explaining a bunch of it. Uh, and he talks quite a bit, uh, but I just wanted to pull this one piece out of it. So he says... Um, during the Winnipeg strike, the labor church became the rallying point for the thousands of workers on strike. The movement was solidified by the opposition of the ministers of the other churches to the strikers, and by the fact that several of them allowed their churches to be used as recruiting barracks for soldiers to oppose the strike. It soon became evident that the labor church was in reality a spontaneous movement of the people, a revolt against denominationalism, formality, and commercialism, a hunger after social righteousness and a social religion, a sense of fellowship and inspiration in an hour of trial, and an insistence on a social as against an individualistic code of ethics and industrialism and religion. Thousands upon thousands gathered in the open air during those tense weeks. Never had Winnipeg seen such a movement as this. The people swarmed from the old line churches to the new crusade. They were being opposed by all the weight of a consolidated state and by the captains of industry, but they would not yield. Their leader was arrested, but it was demonstrated that prison bars could not repress ideas, and the movement, the new movement surged on and in. It could not be crushed. Love that. That's that seeker-sensitive church I'm after. <laughs> That's the one I want to go to. <laughs> That's right. Uh, tragically, it did get crushed, but nevertheless. Right. But I want to go to it yes. still. yes. So listen, pastors, you're thinking, man, why aren't these millennials showing up to my church? Is it because we don't have coffee? Is it because we don't have donuts? Is, are there no door greeters? No. It's because you're not supporting labor. And that's the end of the story. I think. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Every millennial will come to your church if you announce that you're a labor church. Like, they won't. But also, a lot <laughs> of them probably would. Yeah, exactly. If all of a sudden your church was like, let me help you fix your crappy job, I bet yeah. a bunch of millennials would be like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I believe great. in God now. Yeah. I mean, if John Thornton's experience is any indication of yeah. what they're doing at their church, uh, that seems to be not actually uh, too speculative. I know. It's uh, it's a it's a joke when I say it like that, but it seems true. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, so we should talk about the end of the Winnipeg strike. Let's do it. It's a bummer. Oh, boy. Are you prepared? They tip over that streetcar. They tipped it right over. Um, they're not answering the phones. There's little meat. There's no gasoline. You can barely take a shower. <laughs> you can't even see through how through, through your long, long hair. That's right. That's right. There's no barbers. <laughs> Maybe they're impromptu barbers uh, just volunteering their services. The people's the barber. Yes, that's right. The people's barber at the people's church. <laughs> uh, all right. That's the scene. That's the scene that we've created uh, in our minds of the strike. <laughs> Uh, it's a wild time. As you can imagine, throughout the strike, there are clashes between the strikers and the cops. Although, crazy, here's something crazy. At one point, the police actually vote to join the strike. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. That's much later. <laughs> that does not happen right away. Uh, when they do that, though, they also don't relinquish their posts so that Canada won't send in federal troops. Mm -hmm. Also pretty wild. Uh, but, hey, guess what? They did anyway. Mm -hmm. um, they There was a riot act um, that was read from the steps as all these federal uh, police came and uh, first beat a bunch of people with, like, baseball bats and then shot some people. Two people died from those gunshots and, like, almost 100 people were arrested in this mass arrest. And uh, shortly thereafter, they voted to end the strike because casualties were high. And, you know, it was a calculated risk. Like, they just could not, they felt, 
fight the government at that stage. Yeah, yeah. It's a bummer. It is a bummer. Weird. The the story about the cops, though, is pretty crazy. I remember that part from the graphic novel, for it's sure. It's really weird. I know. Oh. Hard to figure out. Miracles can happen, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess they can. I'm not... <laughs> I feel like, uh, I mean... All cops are bastards, whatever. But I feel like probably there were maybe even like uh, less bastardy in nineteen nineteen than they are a hundred years later. Sure, maybe. But who knows? Who knows? Probably they weren't. I don't know. I don't know either. I just cannot imagine and like the, all the stories about cops that I read now. I can't imagine like the the fraternal brotherhood of police like voting to join a strike. That yeah, would never yeah. happen in a million years. I wouldn't want them there. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a pretty unique situation. But I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, the fact is, General Strike is wild. I don't want to talk about cops, so I do want to talk about pastors. And uh, it's great. Um, here's something great, though, about that whole commemoration process. So I mentioned like a bunch of unions spoke out about it, and that's cool. No institutional churches, to my knowledge, spoke out. I yeah. even emailed some people to find out, and no, which was a huge bummer. Yeah. However, I did find one extremely awesome research from uh, this group called Unifaith, which is a union that belongs to Unifor, hence the name, and it's a union for employees of the United Church of Canada. Uh, That's so interesting. I know. There are a lot of moving parts to it um, and a lot of interesting things about it. I don't think there are any other churches that are unionized. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, me either. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I'd like, sometime we should do an episode on them. Yeah, Maybe totally. To figure out what's going on there. But anyway... They put together on their own a resource all about the Winnipeg General Strike, and it's awesome. There is tons of stuff going on in here. There's lectionary readings. There's songs you can sing. There's uh, biblical passages. There's sermons. There's sermon ideas and sermon prompts. Uh, there's further reading. There's It's just like, it's a perfect resource, and it is for church communities. Um, I want to pull out just one thing to give you an idea of what's going on here. So there's a bunch of, there's a list of all these passages, but then there's also um, a sermon idea here based on them. And I want to read what this idea is because it's great. So they say, the Winnipeg strikers managed to maintain a high degree of solidarity for the six weeks of the strike. Their determination to avoid social upset and violence is notable, especially after the special constables, lightly trained replacements for the Winnipeg police force, which was all fired, began to provoke and harass them. After the mayhem of June 21st, 1919, when two strikers were killed and dozens injured when the RCMP opened fire, strike leaders decided to end the job action. The readings are about conflicts of various kinds. These are the biblical readings with various strategies offered. Elijah's, a judge's, Paul's, Jesus's. The history of the strike offers another. How women quickly organized to look after each other and male strikers who were going hungry and also powerfully took the issue to women not yet engaged in the struggle. The preacher may wish to explore how love, justice, and truth should conf confront hatred, injustice, and falsehoods. What kind of resistance is justified if the end or goal is good? It's <laughs> a good sermon idea. That is a sermon I want to hear in church. Yeah, no kidding. Um, it's not every day you hear a really good sermon like that one. <laughs> I think the so this is kind of related. Yeah. Um, so at my church, we have sort of a revolving pulpit where, like, uh, we have pastors, they're great, whatever, um, but they always ask people from the community to also preach. And one time, my friend John, who was on this podcast one time, a very long time ago, <laughs> to talk about summer camp. That was a weird episode. It was when you were gone somewhere. Was, yeah, that's yeah, right. Was I was in Hawaii. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Anyways, so John, uh, he's, a, he's a PhD in philosophy. He's very smart. He knows a lot about, like, Latin American philosophy. 
all these kinds of things. Anyways, one time he preached at our church, and uh, and it was only about the church offensive. He only talked about the young lords. That. that was the whole thing. That's really good. It was good. It's it's as good as this one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, pastors should be taking lessons from where church people have shown up in the past and yeah. also where these strikes totally instruct. Yeah, it's it's so weird that, like, I don't know, at, at my church— I mean, just like the Methodist Church here, you know, I'm, it's very likely that I would hear about social justice or how mm-hmm. we should care about the poor or how whatever. Not all people in my church talk about organized labor, but I think it's because it's an academic community and they're mm-hmm. very <laughs> distant from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just the same, like, um, yeah, I don't know. You're, you might hear some of these ideas at church, but it's also like very rare that you're, that people from your church will probably be involved in these things. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I uh, not, Nothing... I guess all I mean to say is that I, I think I'm an advocate for getting people out of the church and going to like actually do something. Mm, um, yeah, for sure. Well, and even in the Winnipeg strike, so we mentioned a bunch of stuff about William Ivins just because he's kind of like the larger than life character for yeah. sure. Um, but he's not the only person. I mean, there's lots of Christians involved, uh, but even among like the women expressing solidarity, uh, like the Young Women's Christian Association, they like organized meals and uh, tried to do exactly what they're referencing here in this Unifaith document, like making sure people don't go hungry when they're on strike and stuff like that. And uh, that is really neat, I think. Um, just kind of like figure out how other Christians were showing up and yeah. you know, organizing differently. And that's a really wild thing to kind of like keep that memory alive and that tradition alive within Christianity. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Anyway, you can find this resource for free on the internet, and you should look at it. Give it to your pastor. Tell them. <laughs> look at this. It's so good. I couldn't even believe when I found it. I found it on total accident this year, just Googling uh, around, as I occasionally do, <laughs> about the Winnipeg strike. You know you know how it is. When you when you feel led. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it just showed up at one point, and it's really, really fantastic. Well, if you show your pastor this and you live in the United States, you'll have to tell them where Manitoba is first. <laughs> but then, like, look at this, though. That's right. I mean, this whole document will explain everything. They've yeah. got the whole history put together right for you. It's cool. So, the Winnipeg General Strike. There you have it. It's a good one. It was a good strike. Uh, rest in power to all those strike actions. I don't know. <laughs> what are you supposed to say to commemorate a strike? You say, wow, that was cool. <laughs> Let's do it. Wow, that's cool. Let's do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I don't know. It's uh, it's a story where a lot of Christians are involved, and the one graphic novel I read didn't include that, and they should have. Um, but it's another one of those stories that we can use to kind of recall um, the radical history of a certain type of Christianity, especially in, in the shadow of a bigger, meaner Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool, though. I think it's an important story to tell. And look, we did it. Turn over your nearest streetcar with your pastor. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash The Magnificast. we got a Facebook group. I posted it one, one time this week. I'm putting a lot of effort into it. Great you job. Should, and you should too. It's great. Um, yeah, cool. The intro music is by Mario Armstrong. The outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week with postmodernism. Who knows? Probably not. You'll have to be on the lookout. It's all about that, the aleatory chance that there might be an episode. You know, it's just like, it's the messianic moment. It could inbreak at any time, but you don't know when. <laughs> that's Walter Benjamin. That's not postmodernism, but it's, it's also not. It's the hyper-reality of the very possibility of an arc of postmodernism. What if Jesus was Mickey Mouse? Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Will you keep your hoods up?